Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. Welcome, 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 superhumans. Today on the Superhumanize podcast, we are diving into an exhilarating and profound journey with a guest who embodies the essence of transformation and enlightenment. Imagine waking up one day and find that the world as you know it has shifted, not on the outside, but within the deepest realms of your own mind. That's the journey of our incredible guest today, Byron Katie, a luminary in the realm of self-inquiry and personal development. Fasten your seatbelts because we are about to embark on a mental and spiritual adventure that will challenge your perceptions question your deepest beliefs, and possibly, just possibly, alter the way you experience life itself. Byron Katie is not just an author or a speaker. She's a beacon of hope and a catalyst for change. Her revolutionary approach, famously known as The Work, has transformed millions of lives across the globe. In today's episode, we're not just scratching the surface. We're plunging into the depths of questions that stir the soul challenge the mind, and perhaps unveil the secrets to peace and happiness. Katie's insights have been lauded as life-changing, and her method of questioning thoughts, a process so simple yet so profound, has been a lifeline for many on the brink of despair. Katie's journey from the depths of depression to a life of unshakable joy is nothing short of miraculous. And here's the most exciting part. She insists this state of joy is available to all of us. So whether you're a longtime follower of her work or hearing her name for the first time, get ready for an episode that's sure to be enlightening, engaging, and utterly transformative. Let's welcome the extraordinary Byron Katie to the Superhumanized podcast, where we're about to challenge everything you thought you knew about the power of the mind. Ariana Summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized Podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Byron, Katie, welcome to the Superhumanized podcast. It is such a profound privilege to be able to connect with you. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for the invitation. It's good to be with you. My heart is full of gratitude. You have been so influential in my own path to healing and self-growth. You've touched millions of lives. You are someone who raises the vibration on this planet by who you be, by the offerings you put forth into this world. And your own journey of transformation is just truly inspiring. And it's such a reminder of how internal shifts can impact our external mm -hmm. reality. 
And I am really curious about something, and that is if I would like to learn about perhaps a pivotal moment in your life that wasn't about the work, but significantly influenced your process of self-inquiry and personal growth. The moment on the floor that the work was, I became aware of how my world was created. And that was the pivotal moment. That was, I can honestly say, the day I was truly born into awareness that is that immovable world that we live in. It's by nature. I can see clearly and three decades later continue to see clearly that this world really, other than what we're thinking and believing about it, is so beautiful, so flawlessly beautiful. And what I discover, and all these years later, continue to be aware of, without opposite, is this is a friendly world with no downside. I refer to it as earth school. Mm -hmm. And other than, it's like this world is perfect, but what we're thinking and believing about this world could use a little work. And by that self-inquiry, to question anything that would lead us to believe that there's anything less than this giving world without downside. And this is not, these words are not believable to someone listening to it that experiences it differently, of course. But it's it just waiting to be noticed. And that moment on the floor where I was shown clearly the cause of not only my identity, but it showed me clearly how my world came to be. And that was the pivotal moment that I woke up to this, this whole other, this old, this whole other opposite of the world as I understood it to be that sent me into all those more than a decade of agoraphobia and just terror, just the thought of even leaving my bedroom some days. And it's, yeah, so it's really quite something to have that state of grace. But what I find I'm so grateful for is it gave me a way to maintain this revelation of the world as it really is, other than the ego's opposition that would lead us to believe otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I think something that for many people who have experienced states of bliss or of revelation, whether they came spontaneously, whether they've done self-work, whether they've worked with plant medicines or such, what I hear from many people is that oftentimes to maintain that state, to, uh, so to speak, to bring the yoga off the mats into real life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hard. For yourself, has this been a state that 
just continue to be, or maybe it's an and, or via your beingness, via your in continued self-inquiry, did it, did you stay connected to it? Yes, it continued to be immovably because I was so clear on the cause of this world as I experience it to be. I offer people self-inquiry, and there are four questions. And the first one, is it true? Can I really know that what I'm thinking and believing about him, her, them, the world, can I really, can I myself really know that it's true? What? That it's a terrible world. (laughs) Okay, because a lot of people hold that. And we have, when we look at the mind, we have every reason to understand how we would hold that and be traumatized by it even. Uh, at whatever level, major or minor, it doesn't matter. Pain is pain. So I saw how to identify, actually identify respectfully what the ego was offering up and respectfully move it from my mind to paper. So there it is in life, from mind to paper. So it's stable. There is the ego. There is the mind stabilized. It stopped. So now I can meditate in, is it true? Is what I'm believing true? It's a terrible world. Is it true? Can I really know that it's true? And then meditate in that because self-inquiry is about stillness. It's an invitation to stillness to just ponder for ourselves, like the world could say, it's a terrible world, there's something wrong here, there's something wrong there, and that's not right or wrong, it's as we believe it to be, and I respect that, because I can't change the thoughts of other people, which keeps me home in in myself. It's a terrible world, is it true? I can ponder that, sit in that, and then... Can I really know that it's true? Is it true? Now the world would say, yes, it's terrible. Yes, it. but now this is self-inquiry. This is me with me. The whole world, the entire world could believe something. But do I believe it or have I just taken it on like it's true? Like mindlessly, not on purpose, just attached to that, believed what was said. So is it true? Can I myself really know that it's true? And then notice how I react when I believe the thought. This is a terrible world. I react when I believe. I treat people with great caution. Something good happens and I deny it. I look at it like, yeah, but that won't last long. The ego's world is to talk me out of anything that would match my nature. Pure love. That's the base of everyone and everything. That's it. Would I be without the thought? It's a terrible world. And then to contemplate that. And then turn it around. It's a terrible world. What is the opposite of that? It's a wonderful world. It's a kind world. Okay, so I I don't turn this around and try to believe it. Self-inquiry is about an open mind and 
So when I turn it around to the opposite, it's a beautiful world. It's a beautiful world. Just sitting here with you is one example of it's a beautiful world and the, the good you do in the world. And for the world, it's a beautiful thing. And out the windows, I can see the trees and the sky. And my walk this morning, I was walking the ground that holds me. When inquiry found me, I didn't even trust the, that the ground would hold the next footstep, that I wouldn't fall into the abyss. When open mind is, can be pretty weird without self-inquiry. And trust gave me self-inquiry. It allowed me to hold what I, was, what I experienced on the floor. And it's, it's, a beautiful, it's, it's a beautiful world. And anything that would show me differently, I would question it, not to change my mind, but to see and experience for myself authentically what am I believing that would cause suffering in my world. And my world is this world with everyone in it. And the sky, the trees, the clouds, the water, the goodness that I've done nothing for, it's all a given. Mm -hmm. It's all a given. For me, this is what heaven looks like. If you died and went to heaven where everything is perfect. Our, our idea of heaven is everything is perfect. There's no downside. Everyone's healthy. Um, no one dies. It's, um, it's um, everyone loves each other. It's my idea of heaven. I have found that here. But let's say you died and you went to heaven. But the problem was everything you believed in earth you believed in heaven, where would you be? <laughs> it doesn't matter how beautiful life is. The ego's job is to own it. Yeah. So wherever you are, you bring yourself with you, even if that's heaven. So that's one reason I refer to this as earth school. There's a word we use, the heart, as a symbol of love, of What's beautiful, the heart, speaking from the heart, living out of the heart. I like to see the heart as a symbol of what is immovable. Mm -hmm. And anything we would say or do that moves us from our true nature, which is beautiful, but anything that would move us from that understanding belongs in a category, in my category of self-inquiry, mm -hmm. to question anything I'm thinking and believing that would go against this friendly universe as I experience it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes it's even more difficult nowadays for people who are not taught self-inquiry, certainly not in school, Certainly not in most of the U.S. school systems, for example, where it's more about parroting what you learn. So self-inquiry, one of the most profound and important tools, practices to live a beautiful life. We're just not taught it. And then we're in a world where we're inundated with, quote, information. I don't even want to 
call it such. And whether it's the news, oh, the world is a terrible place here, a terrible place there, and this is awful, and that's awful. <laughs> and the danger. So we're in this constant state of fight or flight. And even if we personally don't experience suffering, whether it's health-wise, financial loss, we feel entangled, a lot of us feel entangled in this world of suffering, that perceived world of suffering. And you yourself are somebody, you already alluded to it, you have experienced deep suffering in your life. You had a 10-year period of deep depression that also then culminated in this moment on the floor, which you shared with us. And something about the concept of suffering being optional is very profound and at the same time also very challenging for many to grasp. Yes. And especially if people are in the depths of it, they're dealing with so much. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, how do you navigate conversations with individuals who find it difficult to accept that suffering is a choice? And I understand. Mm -hmm. And I don't try to change that person or what they're thinking. I just listen. And when I say I understand, I listen that closely. And if I don't understand, I ask for more. Would you say more? Or would you clarify that? Or would, I want to know that in person, that person's internal life, that person's life, and they're generous enough to give it to me. So it would be the difference between just thinking I know what my children mean, for example, or really understanding really understanding what they're saying from a perception that leaves me connected, mm. experiencing a connection, um, being on the same page. I listen. I don't, I'm not about changing anyone's mind, just understanding that I don't have the power to change another person's mind. So it leads me to work with one mind, and that's my own. And can I understand when someone doesn't understand? Yes. Mm. And what could someone say about life that, that we haven't heard before, basically, when it comes to, to the ego's world? It's like we're afraid of anything that challenges our identity, that identity of who we believe ourselves to be and how we want to be seen. And this heart, anything, if we see the heart as a, a symbol for wisdom, as a symbol of love, anything the ego would pull up that would go against that heart, that immovable, is going to feel like guilt or stress, or, oh, that's just how it is. That's how I know it's, that's one way I know it's a friendly universe. Anything we think against it feels like stress because it doesn't match the heart. And I may speak be speaking to this on, on a language that's just so simple and just sharing my experience. But that's why I bring self-inquiry into the world. I don't see myself as a teacher because I'm not a teacher. 
I am, if I'm a teacher, I'm also my student. Mm -hmm. And that's, and I am my student. The, the, the student of, uh, of what matters, the a student of no one outside of me, no one in the world that, that I wouldn't understand or no one in the world that I would fear as far as I know. But what do I know about the future? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> There's an enormous, I felt an enormous sense of expansion and liberation when you just spoke about this, whether it's what do I know about the future, nothing, or when you talked about how anything that goes against what the heart is, what our true nature is, how it's this, this sense, this feeling. Anything I think, say, feel, or do that goes against that is going to leave the experience of guilt. Yes. And that guilt is, is it's pure ego, so it's not a bad thing. It wakes us up to there's something maybe we want to question, something mm -hmm. thinking and believing that we may want to, yeah, to question, to see what's not. That And that really resonates with me. I am uh, what I like to call a recovering fixer. When mm -hmm. I see suffering, when I see people going through a hard phase in their lives, and I've oftentimes found myself in the situation, which is also an honor in itself because it, there's a lot of trust involved and people come to me and share and my go-to used to be, I want to fix that. This is how we fix this. And then, of course, oftentimes there are no fixes. And then you find yourself in a situation where you feel like you're not able to provide the help that you set out to give. And then this enormous feeling of guilt sets in. Yeah. Or to coming to the realization that it's not our job to fix. Our only, quote, job, or rather calling, is to love. Yeah. And it's yeah. where we are at our best. Mm -hmm. the, our own best example, <laughs> our best life lived, and everyone's safe around us. Just it's it's safe to be around us. Or I'll say it's safe to be around me. I'm a student, not a teacher. I'm listening. And this world grows me. This world grows you, you said? Mm -hmm. ah. Yes. Beautiful. Yes. This world grows me. I love that. Yeah, if someone says, Byron, Katie, you're a terrible human being, knowing me, I would just get excited and say, tell me more. Tell me more. Because they have the key to something I may be missing. Hello? That on, is that an enemy? No, that's a friend. They're holding a key for me. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. <laughs> I like that. That's the gift of criticism, but the ego would defend when its its identity is being attacked. And the defense is the first act of war. So the moment I would defend, I've started a war. Someone says, You're a terrible human being, Byron Katie. And if I'm not fascinated by that, and want to understand why they would see me that way, to grow me. If I'm upset about it, 
then I'm stunting my growth. Right. You're a terrible human being. And I was like, I'm a terrible human being. How dare you say that about me? Did you hear what they said? And then I think I'm going to post it on Facebook. And I think, da, 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 da. So who started the war in that situation? They said I was a terrible human being. That's who they believe me to be, let's say. And how can I change that? That's their Byron Katie. If there are a hundred people in the room and you're there, there are a hundred different yous sitting there because you are who we believe you to be individually. And so how can we manage a room like that with this identity that the ego wants us to play out, like knowing the right answer to something or... I don't let's, let's say expectations growing up from our parents or our siblings or our, our schoolmates. Yes, and I think what you just said about this, when you go into the defense, there's also a sense of stuckness there, not openness. When we're open to at least considering what somebody else said and to consider, hmm, can I learn something new from that? Is there growth in there for me? That's a beautiful thing. That's flow. And at the same time, I think it's also really important that when we're in touch with our hearts, when we have a sense of who we be, to also not have that shaken every time when somebody sees us in their own unique way, which they have every right to do. And then we also get to decide, is that something that I want to incorporate into my thought process or my feeling process about myself? Or do I just let that person be who they be with their perception of me and I am secure in myself? I know my in my heart of hearts who I am and I just keep flowing in my beingness and that's okay too. Yeah, yeah. So the enemy is a friend. And people who would agree with us are friends. So there's just nothing outside of that. Yes. And to be open to growth and not afraid of it. Growth always takes us outside of our comfort zone, of course. And we're biologically hardwired to resist change because our brain wants to do its number one job, which is to keep us alive. So keeping the status quo, because we're alive in the status quo. And, Why change? And that brain that wants to keep us alive is that ego is on its false identity. It's a state of mind. And ego is a state of mind. The body is a physical. And the ego is not a physical. So the ego's fight is to be something, to be something. It has to identify as this object. So it's I, I am, I am going to do this. I have done that. I think that I feel. And this constant ego's obsession with, with living as this object, as being a something. But ego being a state of mind, that can never be. That can never be. Self-inquiry has shown me that, that the ego is a terrified child. It's something to be listened to and respected. And when you question it, if it really trusts you, it will offer itself up. 
that question, how do you react when you think the thought, he thinks you're a terrible person, and he tells the world, he put it online, how do you react when you think the thought? They all think you're a terrible person. That's a huge question. How do I react? And then we just simply just meditate in that and let the let the ego show itself to someone that really trusts it. Because the question is, is it true? It's not like that. It's like a gentle, is what I'm believing true? And how do I react when I believe the thoughts? So that shows clearly the cause of suffering. And then that last question, who am I without the thought? Who am I without the thought? For example, there's something wrong with me. Who am I without the thought? And it can be introduce you to a very foreign world. Is there a world outside of, I don't care about me? That's a part of my identity. And so when we question that, that pops. We question, there's something wrong with me. Is it true? Notice how I react when I believe it, who I'd be without it. Who am I without the thought? There's something wrong with me. And then to turn it around, there's something right with me. And to authentically meditate in that. In that situation I'm looking at, there's something right with me. And then to, in silence, explore that and be shown as opposed of just be with what shows up by invitation. It's this self-exploration. We can't change what we're not aware of. And what self-inquiry does is it, it shows, it all shows up there. I refer to these, uh, to this body of self-inquiry, the work as checkmate. It's checkmate to the ego and it's done and no one has to do it. It's, but it does exist out there for, it takes a very open mind. Yes. <clears throat> I love what you said before about the ego then offering itself up. So it's a very gentle and a very beautiful process. That's what resonated so much with me when I years ago discovered you first. And your life has touched millions. And each individual's journey is unique. Right. Have you observed any commonalities with the challenges or breakthroughs people experience while they are doing the work? Oh, many. I've seen <laughs> this morning I do a a one or two hour thing three days a week mm -hmm. online. And this woman, this woman came on and she had been to the school for the work years ago. And when she came on, I didn't recognize her. There was there's nothing there's nothing left of her other than a kind of facial physical recognition is the only way that she's just the radical shifts and the clearer we get the kinder we become the less fearful we are and 
self-inquiry. Someone had to tell me later, you didn't recognize her, did you? And she was such a controller. And so I know mind, as we say. And she was just the opposite of control. Mm. And and her body was so different. It was just so different. So how did the absence of suffering? Mm. And how did the absence of control, how did that manifest in her being? Her mind was open. There was laughter, just voluntary, involuntary laughter. And and there was no there was she talked about the absence of control without calling it the absence of control with her three daughters and her family and life. Whereas before every little thing had to be micromanaged. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness. Seemed to watch that kind of transition, but that's not unusual in my world because I'm so often with people in self-inquiry. And once the ego gets a taste of it, it loves it because it's in, we're actually inviting it to speak rather than doing war with it because it offers itself up. There's something wrong with me, and it's thank you for sharing, and that's valuable. And I'm, it's so valuable, I'm going to move it to paper. There's something wrong with me. Now let's just sit with it. There's something wrong with me. Is it true? Mm. And to honestly meditate in that, get still in that, ponder that. And then how do I react when I believe the thought? To ponder that, get still in that. And who would I be without it? What would my life look like without it? Who am I without the thought there's something wrong with me? At first, I couldn't even imagine life without those that critical mind, self-critical mind. And then to turn it around, there's something right with me. And the ego can be so strong that there's something right with me. At first, it felt like a blow, like the ego could barely handle that. No, there's nothing right with me. There's The ego's fighting for its life. So there's something right with me. Okay, so slow it down, little ego. It's okay. There's something right with me. Let's just sit in this together. Okay, I got up this morning. <laughs> I got out of bed. That's some kind of miracle. I met my commitments this morning. I saw the sun, the sunrise this morning. I got to be with the trees this morning. So there's something right with me. This is nothing anyone has to do because the ego will say, oh yeah, there's a lot right with me and we'll go on with our life here. But this is a self-inquiry and it takes a very open mind and a lot of courage. Mm-hmm. It does. And what you just shared about the ego reacting very strongly to the something's right with me. I have experienced that myself so many times. It's gotten so much better. And it's not, it sounds simple, but it's not easy. 
It's a a big ask because the ego has trained us. It sounds odd. The ego has trained. It's usurped, usurped sanity, usurped sanity. And, And we're lost. And we can never be too lost for self-inquiry. I have what I call a judge-your-neighbor worksheet where people can answer those six questions on paper. They can answer those six questions and then question what they have responded with. And it's, it's, it only goes one way. It goes from a kind of hell or problem everything on a scale from 1 to 10, everything from hell to minor difficulty or irritation. But what we're thinking and believing is the cause of depression. It's the cause of so much of our medical condition. It's mm, what we're thinking and believing, and it's, it's, the cause of, it's the cause of life. When we're born it's and until it's I'm not born the moment I believed. Mm-hmm. I'm a baby, my mother could hold in her arms and she said I would laugh and coo and goo and cry and poop my pants and that I was so cute or I was this or I was so quiet. She had, and she's describing her daughter to me, her baby, her child to me. But I wasn't there. And then there was this moment that I believed. And let's anyone sitting with us today, I would invite them to to just get still, to still their minds, and then get in touch with their first memory. Mm -hmm. The oldest memory that they can possibly recall to get still, go back as far as you can. And then notice your age. You're three or four. Some people, when they, I invite them with their eyes closed doing this to just hold up as many fingers representing years for their age. And some of them will have six and seven fingers up and some will have three and four. We come in as three or four-year-olds. The moment we believe is the birth of identity, the birth of I. And there's a want there. We're born into want. Ego, want, brings us into the world, and it's a privilege. It's like we have believed ourselves here, and we didn't do it on purpose. It's a happening So I'm not born from my mother's womb. I'm born as a state of mind. So then I invite them to, and I'm inviting everyone with us today, to notice the second oldest memory. And it takes stillness, get quiet. You have your first one. Now, what is the next oldest memory? you can recall. And then there'll be years between that. There'll be lapse of time, sometimes a year, three years. So it's like we come in 
And then there's this, you know, this, but all the time, according to our parents and our siblings, we did this, we did that, we did this, we did that, and we all went to here, and we went to there. And do you remember when you did? And we were already, they thought we were talking, and if I was talking, I can't recall if it's true I was talking, that um, I even knew what I was talking about. No memory of it, so I can't speak to it. Yeah, it's a wonderful exercise. That really is a fascinating practice, and I just did it. And what you said also, it's connected to a one. So the first memory I could get to in this moment now was, I think I was approximately four years old. I grew up all across the world. My father was in the diplomatic service. I was at kindergarten in New Delhi, India, and there was a little boy wanting to play with me. I was new. And then there was this other little girl, and she forbid him to play with me out of whatever motivation. And uh, my brain immediately linked that, ah, that's rejection or wanting to belong, but not being allowed to belong. And the second memory is interesting. It's actually shortly thereafter. I remember this was probably a year later. I remember being on the ground. I was early at kindergarten. There was another little boy with me. And... I discovered a scorpion and I took some kind of a little stool and placed it over it. And so then a gardener came later and removed the scorpion from the kindergarten room. So my brain links this to danger. So this is actually interesting. I will have to sit with that. So the first experience of identity, in a sense, wanting to belong and being rejected. And the second experience, danger, which I managed. So I didn't feel victimized. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel victimized by the danger. However, danger. So that 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 was truly a interesting exercise. It, it, it really is. So all the time between you were talking, you were eating, you were you were going to school, and but there was no one going to school. Mm. So and and until what you just described. Mm-hmm. And so I can't say that when my mother describes her Byron Katie, B, then I get to meet her child. But my experience is very different, even though there are a lot of similarities. Sometimes I don't know if it's what she told me and I imagined it, or if it really happened. Or if it's photographs that we remember. We yeah. actually remember photographs, but we don't remember the experience itself. I find mm-hmm. that a lot. Mm-hmm. Then our parents can say, oh, this is when you were this and this. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that is their child, and it wasn't me. And now it is according to my parents, and that doesn't make it so for me. And my mind is very open to it. And I also find that this is an experience that's highly likely pretty common, as we are these little human beings 
that are growing into themselves, depending on what kinds of parents we have, we're either allowed to blossom into our own expressions guided by our parents or ways of thinking, ways of praying, ways of living, ways of speaking, what's acceptable regarding that are imposed on us. And then there, I find that for myself, it was more difficult to actually find myself, which may be also at the root of why I have difficulty remembering much of those first years. Yeah, and, and you're not alone. It's very difficult, I find, for most of us. <laughs> A couple of things will stand out, as you described with the scorpion and the first two memories. But, but what's in between? Or prior to that, those memories, if I like to say, if I can't remember it, it didn't happen. And a mother could tell a child when they're older, you were molested when you were a baby, and, and maybe it comes up in conversation somehow. And so if I don't remember it, it didn't happen to me, but it happened to my mother's daughter. And I'm not being tricky with words here. It's just that if I can't remember it, I have no proof it happened to me. Mm -hmm. But our parents can tell us things happen to us when we're not aware of that. They can tell us something happens to us and it becomes our identity as though it did happen to us. Right. Or sometimes things happen to us, but we suppress them. So I'm curious, dear. How do you differentiate between emotional suppression and a healthy detachment from negative thoughts? Just by getting still and see for myself, is it true Mm -hmm. in my own experience? Yes, it's true in my mother's experience. Is it true? Is it true in mine? Did that happen to me? And if I can't remember it, in my world, until I do, it didn't happen to me. It did happen to me and my mother's experience. Mm-hmm. But I can't own my mother's experience. Her witnessing it is hers. So I can't. It's not possible. But I can believe my mother, true or not, what she says, I can believe my mother and take it on and traumatize myself. But it's nothing I'm doing on purpose. It's a happening. She says it. I don't remember it. My imagination goes there. And I I could be everything from mild experiencing mild discomfort to trauma. And, and then things that are buried in my world are um, come up when I'm ready. Right. And I can afford to say that because I have a way of dealing with that. But without a way of dealing with it, of course, we're going to suppress what we um, what we're unable to deal with. And yeah, with we have wonderful help in this world. There are there's so many ways to find understanding. This is and With the technology we have and the talented people we have, it's just, oh my goodness, anyone that needs help, it's everywhere now. Yes. 
I am so grateful to every modality that does good, that brings us back to ourself. Absolutely. We literally, when we own a cell phone, we have access mm. to the entire database of human knowledge in our back pocket, and we can connect to communities, we can connect to cultures, we can seek very different ways of understanding what's happening to us or how we want to work on solutions for issues we're working through. And something that I am fascinated with is that your work transcends cultural and linguistic boundaries. And have you noticed if there are any different differences in how different cultures apply or integrate the work? No, just no, the work is just straight up. It's uh, a call to look to oneself, self-inquiry. I think Socrates had said an unquestioned life is not worth living. And I've certainly found that to be. Yes. Yes. Very true. And so you have been putting forth these offerings for many years now, and countless people continue to be touched by them. What continues to inspire you and drive you and your passion to share the work? Um, that's it. My passion is to support people to understand what they already know. You can tap into to their internal, and that's the key to their heart. The ego has just, it, it just grabs everything so dramatically that the other doesn't need to be proved. It's immovable. It's not going to change. It's pure wisdom. Nothing's going to affect it. And mm-hmm. self-inquiry, with self-inquiry, when we sit in these questions, these four questions, it's, it, that's the only way it's going. Without the question, wisdom is wisdom. It doesn't need to say, oh, I'm wisdom. Look at me. That's, it's because it's wisdom. It needs nothing. It is that immovable that I use that symbol of the heart. And anything, again, that we think, act, or, or want to be that's less than that, it's going to be it's going to be internal war, war and it goes out into the world. Mm-hmm. It goes out into the world. It shows without words. Yes, one hundred percent. The wars we fight within ourselves, we carry them into the world. It can be a snide remark. It can be the fight with our partners that we seek out of no quote nowhere. It's how we are biased or bigoted, how we might be even subconsciously cruel. So even and these small, again, quotation mark acts or behaviors, they just grow. They grow and they magnify. I personally find mm -hmm. they grow identity. It's that identity that grows judgmental. And I am right. I know mind this arrogance. It's the opposite of open-minded. Yes. 
I heard a beautiful thing recently. There's a spiritual community. I love to attend the services every once in a while, led by Michael Bernard Beckwith Agape here in Los Angeles. And uh, he said something really interesting the other day where it was about you can have your opinion, your thoughts, let's call it the thesis. And then there's the antithesis, someone else holding a different opinion or a worldview. So now you can, of course, fight about this. You can seek to be right or you can seek to be real. And then you arrive at synthesis. Mm -hmm. I, I really that really touched something inside of me. And I think this process of self-inquiry is the basis for a fulfilled, rich life, for a life where we pour out love, where we live and make decisions based on love and abundance versus fear and lack. And the practice of what you have put forth into this world, the work is invaluable. I know it has changed my life so much. I know many in our audience will have worked with it too. And there is a question I ask every guest I have the honor to speak with on this podcast. Uh, now, the work is an incredible practice, of course, foundational, in my opinion. Is there any other practice? It could be something you've been doing for many years, something new that has elevated your life in some way, spiritually, physically, or mentally, that you would be willing to share with us? On living the turnarounds are on a way of life. I want him to care about me. I question that, and I see the arrogance in it. I'm even trying to dictate who he cares about. He <laughs> <laughs> to care about me. <laughs> but it's, and going through the four questions, and then... And I don't want him to care about me. As I pondered, that doesn't, that seems off. That's a weird turnaround. That's, that's weird. I don't want him to care about me. But then you get beyond all that ego talk and you just sit in. I don't want him to care about me. And oh, what comes up? We think there's nothing there, but oh, what would meet that question if our minds are open to it? It's nothing less than just life-altering the way we see people and ourselves. So something, and in answer to your question, it's not new, but the thing I love, which isn't your question, walking in stillness alone as a practice. Because you, as you're walking, the oxygen get in and nature are surrounded by nature even if you're walking in traffic you can see the sky you can there are trees there but, but walking and what comes through the mind with that oxygen in combination it's if to the open mind the world literally clearly is inside of you and it's life altering and it's and it's, um, it's, if I had something to pass on other than self-inquiry, it would be, um, if you're a meditator, walk, get still. And if you're not a meditator, walk, get still, and let the world show you itself. Mm. As opposed to what you're thinking and believing, to just notice reality and notice how the ego wants to interject something, let's say, negative into it. Beautiful. 
I really love the practice of meditation and also a walking meditation. Let the world unfold, show itself to you. Mm. And one last question. Is that an aura ring you're wearing? It is. Um, I love my aura ring. I love it. It tracks my sleep and my steps and um, my heart being. Do you have one? Uh, my husband has one, and I am about to order myself one. Most of my friends use it and absolutely love it. I sleep fantastically, so that's why I have not quite been called to it. However, it tracks so many other amazing things in the meantime. it's Yeah, it's great. I, I love seeing that on on your finger. I love this. I it's yeah i just love this ring it keeps track of me because i i don't <laughs> it does. and so now we both do right it takes things off your mind wonderful byron katie it has been such a pleasure to be in your radiant kind gracious and wise presence Thank you for so generously sharing of yourself with us today. I am really very grateful. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Ariane. So good to be with you. For those of you who want to do a deeper dive and start optimizing mentally, physically, and spiritually, head over to my newsletter to superhumanize.com slash newsletter and sign up. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.